This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. There are six venomous snakes that call Mississippi home, and a bite from any one of them can do some serious damage. Harmless snakes are more common, but venomous snakes encounters do happen, and everyone should be alert when enjoying the outdoors. But what do you do if you get bitten, and how can you spot a venomous snake? Today we have Dr. Robert Galley from the University Medical Center here to talk about snake bites, spider bites, and ticks. Dr. Major's here, ready for pet questions as well. So join the conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, or you can email animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it airs every Saturday morning at 6 as well. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Doing good. Good morning. Uh, Libby, you've got your notepad out there, so you've got some events uh, upcoming that you want to tell us about. I've got a few. Let's see. One, in fact, that this is across the river in Arkansas, Mariana, Arkansas, the Mississippi River State Park has an exhibit of art that deals with the Mississippi River, and evidently a lot of it's John Ruskie's art, and Mm. that exhibit uh, is open through October the 21st, so you've got a few more days to see that. And then uh, the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science here in Jackson, they've got a new exhibit, um, In the Dark is what it's called which I think is going to be a great for the, you know, they always have that big Halloween party. So I think this might, there might be a plan there. But uh, on Thursdays for the next couple of three weeks, they've got a program going in cooperation with Millsaps, the preschool, pre-service teachers. So these are teachers in training, uh, which try very hard, so they're going to be really good at this. They're doing what they call engage and explore activities around the museum on Thursday afternoons from 2.30 to 3.30. So that'll be today, 2.30 to 3.30. Millsap students with um, activities, and I think it's primarily designed for those little kids. It's something you could go do right after school. Okay. And so you can see the aquariums and do some activities, and it's cool enough to walk on the nature trail. That's right. We've got a little bit of cool weather, so I don't know how long it's going to be here, but I think most people yeah. are probably going to enjoy it. I know that uh, last Sunday got out to play some tennis, and uh, it was quite hot, and it was like 8.30 in the morning. So yeah. uh, I think a lot of us are, are happy to have a little bit of cooler weather in all yeah. Although if it gets too cold, we'll probably be wishing for warm weather again. And then have one more thing. Uh, the Audubon chapters, Audubon Society chapters all around the state are doing numerous and many field trips. So this is a great time to get in touch with one of those groups. If you're a person who wants to get outside and would like a group of people to do that with, uh, Audubon Society chapters around the state, the Coast, Hattiesburg, Jackson, I know there's... Uh, around the Oxford area. I think there's one in the in, uh, the Delta, too. But they, they do really good trips. And, again, the cooler weather certainly helps that out as yes. well. Yes. 
So we're going to be talking about uh, snake bites today, uh, mostly on humans, but Dr. Major, sometimes uh, pets, I would imagine may, maybe more frequently dogs, uh, get snake bites. Do you, do you see a lot of those encounters in your clinic? You know, we see a fair fair number of snake bites. It's possibly seasonal. It seems like uh, early spring. Uh, a lot of times there's some movement. Uh, the most common snake bite that we see is a cottonmouth or a moccasin. Uh, and where do you think the dog usually gets it? Usually on his nose or his <laughs> face. And uh, those usually can be handled pretty easily. Uh, there's some evidence that uh, unless it's impairing uh, respiration or actually have a bite on the tongue, that you know these things can be fairly easily treated. The worst bites that I see really have to do with biting in an area where there's not a lot of flesh, uh, i.e. the foot, uh, that sort of thing, because if it's sloughs, which you can have a necrotoxin with the moccasin, uh, if it's sloughs, there's nothing to cover it up with. So you have to deal with an open wound in a lot of cases, and there may be bone exposed. So that can be a lot worse than something on the face. So, uh, you know, that's dogs are naturally inquisitive, and, and certainly when they see a snake maybe slithering along somewhere, that's kind of their natural instinct to go after them. It, it, any tips for maybe if you have your dogs uh, in the outdoors to keep a tighter rein on them maybe? You know, some dogs are pretty savvy about snakes. Others are totally dumb. Uh, <laughs> rarely will you ever see a cat uh, get bitten by a snake. They They are pretty adept with their hands or their feet, front feet if you want to call it that and uh, do pretty well, but and avoid the snakes. They avoid them. As far as you, you need to know the area that you're in. As far as your home or your area there, you need to keep the, especially if it's a ditch nearby, you need to keep the underbrush or the overgrowth, if you will, uh, trim back, and uh, that seems to be a favorite place. But remember that we've talked about this many times. Uh, snakes generally are going where the food source is. So if you have mice and rats and other uh, food source, that's where they're going to go. All right, so we welcome back to our show Dr. Robert Galley. Uh, Dr. Galley, you've been on the program before. For those of us that uh, might not have uh, heard your earlier visit, give us a little bit idea about your background. Well, I'm at uh, University Medical Center. <clears throat> I have been there for 25 years now, um, Department of Emergency Medicine, but also with medical toxicology. And one point that I do want to bring up uh, before we forget, um, with the Poison Center, and I, I want to welcome all the listeners to call the Poison Center, not just for human problems, but for animal problems as well. We get calls quite a bit. My dog ate a whole tube of lipstick. What do I do? <laughs> <clears throat> and you can avoid running to the emergency shelter or the emergency vet. Uh, no offense, Dr. Troy. I mean, don't take business <laughs> no, away from no, you. No. <clears throat> but you also avoid the worry about whether or not something's going on. And by the same token, we can let you know now is not the time to delay. You need to get to the vet right now. Okay. Um, 1-800-222-1222. one 800 222-1222. All right. We will give that out uh, before the show is over a couple more times. So that's 1-800-222-1222. All right. Um, so is there a season uh, during the year or a time of during the year when, when snake bites uh, are more prevalent? Maybe snakes would be more active? Probably it's best to, to talk about it in terms when they're not. Since these are poikilotherms, meaning they're cold-blooded animals, during our colder times of the year, they hibernate more, and so they're not out and about. 
some would say then as a result, they wake up in the spring and they're pretty darn hungry, so they want to get out and get some food. And so springtime may be fairly busy. But we get calls to the poison center and patients transferred to university from early spring till, till certainly early winter. The ones that we get in the middle of the winter are typically people who have them as pets, which, by the way, is not legal. You have to have a special license to have a venomous creature in a tank in your own house. And uh, and obviously, um, that's fairly closely regulated. And just a personal thought here, you'd have to wonder about someone who would want a venomous snake in their house. But, hey, that that's... Uh... That's not for me to judge, I guess. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> um, so uh, let me, Dr. Major, touched on it, but and this is something that we've talked about and can remind folks of, um, things to do around your house to make sure that maybe make it less hospitable uh, for snakes to be around there. He mentioned keeping the grass cut down low, um, avoiding the food source. Are there some other things that you can think of? Um, you know, you can use some mulch in your flower beds, things like that. Being aware of of what's going on in your yard. You know, if you spend a little time, if you're bird watching, don't just look up, look look down a little bit to kind of pay attention to what's going on around you and you may see what's happening. If you see any mice or rat damage to your house, I can't express enough, go ahead and address that because that causes all kinds of wildlife issues in your house. So mice and rats, everything likes to eat them. And, you know, I'll remind, too, when we see a snake, don't rush towards it. Trying to kill a snake or trying to catch a snake is when people get bit, particularly for young people. Step backwards and let that snake go on its way. Don't try to catch it or kill it. Leave it alone, and you'll do much better. it's, It's helpful to learn how to identify the snakes so that you know which ones that you particularly need to be concerned about and that you particularly need to keep your pets away from. But it, any snake you see, if you don't know what it is, don't try to get too close. You know, if you if it's convenient to take a step or two backwards and then take a picture, that's great. Yeah. Then you can figure it out later. But don't try to catch it or kill it right yeah. then. You're going to hurt yourself. I've had a large number of calls and people sending pictures this year, and usually it's a uh, basically a rat snake, uh, and that's the most common, and they're doing a good job. Uh, I almost had a catastrophe myself. Uh, what, two nights ago, I had the lights off and just barely the lights, but anyway, I went off the screen porch and almost stepped on about a 12-inch long immature, I guess immature, uh, king snake, mm. and... <laughs> It would have been bad because I would have squashed him, but I missed him and almost tripped over myself trying not to, you know, to avoid him until I realized what it was. But, uh, yeah, always be aware. And there's some excellent sources online to go look at the different types of snakes and identify. But there's been a lot of uh, the brown rat snakes or more commonly called chicken snakes out in the country. But there have been a lot of those that get killed simply because, one, they get fairly large, and they can scare people. So just be careful. Yeah. There are, know, okay. That's usually the picture that I get, too, to ID is usually a, uh, what I used to call a gray rat snake. Yeah, They're beautiful yeah. snakes. Yeah. There are simple visual ways to be able to tell a venomous snake. Uh, one is that they have a triangular-shaped head. Even though a snake typically looks like a long strand of 
the same size individual. They're, they're, the venomous snakes actually have a triangular-shaped head that looks like a neck that runs after that. If you get close enough, you can see that their, their pupils are vertical, yeah. um, and they're elliptical pupils, uh, not round mm. pupils. And the round ones are actually easy to see. The vertical ones are less likely. If you see a round pupil, then that's non-venomous. They're called pit vipers because between the nose and the eye, they have a little pit, which is a temperature-sensing device. Um, and so those three ways you can kind of tell just from the head end. What happens a lot of times is people cut the head off when they kill it, and they bring the snake in to us and say, so what is this? Is it is it dangerous? And there is one other way to be able to tell, <clears throat> and that is if you go to the anal plate and beyond, you'll find a single versus a double row of, of subcaudal scales. But Usually, I figure if you're that close to the back end of a snake, you deserve whatever you get. If you, if you find the cast-off skin, though, that mm-hmm. works real yep. well because you can tell if yep. you've had a poisonous or a non-poisonous. But I will make one caveat about the the angular head or the arrow-shaped head. Uh, a rat snake and also a common water snake can, when they get alert or if they're upset and they're nervous about you, boy, they if they Pop tighten up. up Puff up, mm-hmm. they'll get that angular head too, mm-hmm. and then of course we all the little what what people call a, a puff adder. Uh, those little mm-hmm. snakes are completely non poisonous, and they they can threaten and act like it, thinking that they're being defensive, but they can also cause their own I, demise. I'd, I'd much rather that. see people mistake and think it's yeah. venomous and mm-hmm. run away. <laughs> yeah. So that's okay. Yeah, as long as you as long as you <clears throat> leave the snake alone and run away. Yeah. Time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll continue talking about snake bites. And later in the show, we'll talk about other types of bites, uh, such as spider bites and tick bites. Dr. Major's here ready for your pet questions as well. So give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 We've got Craig and Everett on the line. We'll get to those calls. And also during the break, see if you can finish this old rhyme. Red touching black, safe for blank. Red touching yellow, kill a blank. We'll fill in those blanks for you after this. On her way to work one morning Down the path alongside the lake A tender-hearted woman saw a poor half-frozen snake his pretty colored skin had been all frosted with a dew. Oh, well, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you. Take me in, oh, tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, tender woman. the car is kind of like that hairstyle you had in high school. Really cool back in the day. But that old car is still cool when you donate it to MPB Think Radio. Go to mpbonline.org for details. Then sit back and enjoy the ride. Now that's cool. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Today we are talking about snake bites and also taking pet questions. So if you want to join the conversation with a question or comment, you can give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 672 
888-346-7464. You can also email the show. The address is animals at mpbonline.org. Before the break, we brought up that old rhyme that it helps you identify one of the mm-hmm. venomous snakes. So we'll finish it out for you. It's red touching black, safe for Jack, red touching yellow, kill a fellow. And that refers to the venomous coral snake scale color pattern that will help you identify it and let you know to stay away from that. So uh, red touching black, safe for Jack, red touching yellow, kill a fellow. So we're going to talk about venomous snakes. We'll list the kinds of venomous snakes that are in Mississippi and what to do if you are bitten by a snake. But first, let's go to the phones. We start in Biloxi. Craig has called in today. Good morning, Craig. Go ahead, please. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, I was wondering if there's any benefit to uh, allowing poisonous snakes to live. I I pass by uh, copperheads walking on the street all the time, and I let them go. But uh, cotton mouth in the water, I I think, are another story. I I, I don't kill them either, Craig, because um they're you know they're excellent ratters and mousers, and um, the only time I would say that we need to get them moved away is if they're close around somebody's house or around their pets or children, and then we do need to help them find another place to live. We get over 100 calls uh, a season for snake bites uh, across the state. About 60% of those are from uh, copperheads, 30% from cottonmouths, and 10% from rattlers. It's important to understand that for the 90%, that being the agistrodons, the snakes that don't have the rattles, uh, we oftentimes don't even treat. These are not that dangerous a creature. The Cotton cottonmouth has a venom thirty times weaker than a rattlesnake, and the copperhead huh. is fifty times weaker than a rattlesnake. So I wouldn't get too worried about them. Let them be; they'll take care of the rats for you. Okay, Craig. Go yeah, th- what, what what about the old uh, cut? And when I was growing up, you, you had to cut and, and suck out the poison. Is that still used? Uh, no, we. You know, I don't know about you, but I floss my teeth every day, and if I do that, I know that I get bacteria and other stuff in my bloodstream. If if you start sucking on venom, you're going to get venom in your um, uh, to basically swell up your mouth, and it'll cause you bigger problems. Most of those things, there there are some sucking devices, and they yeah. they've been proved to be pretty ineffective. To be honest with you, um, it, besides which, then you start cutting in an area that now has been compromised and. The likelihood of infection from your spit is probably uh, more of a of a danger. Although, to be honest, the the venom is bactericidal, which means that it will kill bacteria. If we do see infections, it's likely from the snake's mouth, in which case it comes from the gut of the snake's last meal. So they've injected mouse poop into your arm, and that's what the infection is going to be. All right. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Craig. Uh, and by the way, we're going to uh, go into what you should do in a snake bite here in just a minute. But again, we've got another call to get to, and it's Everett from Liberty. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Morning, sir. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, I pretty much uh, hate snakes unless they king snake or black snake. But anyway, my question is, uh, I heard, and you can hear anything, but I heard that cinnamon is a deterrent for snakes. They don't, they don't like to smell nice. Is that true? And I, I'll just hang up and listen to your answer. All right. Uh, thanks for the call. Any thoughts on cinnamon? I don't know of any research that's been done on cinnamon. There are a lot of 
kind of other things. People say mothballs, cinnamon. It may be true that they don't like the smell or the taste, but um, how are you going to use that, really? You'd have to use an awful lot of cinnamon to make any difference. I I can't imagine vest. any way that it would be effective. <laughs> I really don't. You know, they, it's just... There's, um, there's a lot of folklore about deterrence, and uh, if it if somebody put something out and there are no snakes, did it work or were there no snakes? If, uh, if a snake is following a mouse or a rat, <laughs> yeah. I kind of doubt that mothballs <laughs> or cinnamon are going to deter them. I think they're going for the mouse. Well, you know, a couple of years ago on the Internet, the popular thing was the cinnamon challenge where you someone takes a mouthful <laughs> of cinnamon and it you know dries up their mouth. So mm-hmm. my thought would be if you see it, you go to the snake, you, you open his mouth, and you pour <laughs> the cinnamon in. And uh, he'll choke. So that that might be a way to deter him. Uh, I wouldn't rely on cinnamon. I would not. Okay, so we, uh, at the top of the show, said that there are six, I think, six types of uh, venomous snakes in Mississippi. Um, What are they? Oh, okay, let's see. Got three rattlers, pygmy rattlers and cane break rattlers and diamondback rattlers. You've got copperheads and cotton mouths and then the little coral snake. And I guess a a warning about pygmy rattlers, it's very hard to see the rattler on. I think that may be the poisonous snake that's the least often detected as a poisonous snake. We've had people, oh, we've had one sort of frightening. They aren't prone to bite, I would say, although I hate to, don't want to encourage anybody to handle them. But uh, we had an incident where um, several people handled a cute little snake, and then brought it to the museum alive in the sh- shoebox, and we said, mm, this is a pygmy rattler. <laughs> but they're, they're tiny little rattlers at the end when they're tiny little snakes. And uh, so I would say don't pick up a little tiny snake like that without knowing what it is. You just mm-hmm. That's a good another reason to know your snake IDs. And we've talked about the fact that those rattlers are the most poisonous. Mm-hmm. Copperheads... They bite, I would think they might be the most common bite just because they sit right there. They rely on their camouflage, which is really good. And if you step on them once, they may not bite you. You step on them that second time, they're going to get you. (laughs) And it's a painful bite, even though it's not medically serious. So you want to avoid that if you can. And then cottonmouths give you so much warning that they actually don't, I've always been told that they don't tend to bite too often because they give a lot of warning. I have less experience in the field. Yeah. For me, it's already a done deal. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of come yeah. in and they're swelling, and, and, and so we address what's there. I think most often people misidentify what the snake is. And to be honest, I don't need to see the snake. If you come in with a swollen hand and looks a certain way and say I was bit by a snake, I'm going to believe you. And I don't need to see it. Mm-hmm. I had one event where a, a woman and her her daughter, an older woman, uh, was um, tending her tomatoes and was bit by a snake. And the other my other woman said, "Here, I've got it in my purse." And she pulled out a plastic bag, and she said, "Oh, it's dead." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, it's not." <laughs> she nearly fainted. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> it, it? It was a, a cotton mouth, and sure enough, I grabbed it behind, right b- behind the head, and I kind of looked at it, and it looked at me, and then that little 
forked tongue came right out at me. And I, I kind of realized, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, she had stunned. She had stunned the snake. I guess mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about snakes and snake bites on Creature Comforts this morning. Looking for your input and your phone calls at one eight seven seven MPB ring. The number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Next from Corinth, Charles is on the line. Good morning, Charles. Go ahead. Morning. How you doing? We're doing good. What do you have for us? Uh, I wanted to say that. Um, Another reason you shouldn't try to kill a snake, I think, is uh, sometimes if you cut their heads off, and like even for a couple hours later, you can if you try to touch that head or something, it can still bite. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, inject poison into you that way. Right. Yes, thank you, Charles. And oh, I had one more thing. Okay. When uh, I used to work at Baptist Hospital in Memphis, and we had a, a guy come in who uh, was bitten by a snake, and he did the old tourniquet and uh, cut his arms and everything. <laughs> Ended up it was a chicken snake. Mm-hmm. So he didn't even have to do all that. So that caused a lot more problem than the bite would have. Yeah. All right. And and now we know that you don't have to do that even if it's poisonous. You don't want to tourniquet or, or cut. No, I don't want to. Yeah. All right. Charles, uh, thanks for thanks. your call. Uh, so, Dr. Galley, if you are bitten by a snake, uh, what are what are the things that you should do? Mm-hmm. Well, it's acceptable if you curse a little bit. (laughs) Most everybody does that first. Um, We don't, as I mentioned, need the snake. Most people say the only first aid tool you need is a set of car keys, which is get to a healthcare facility. There isn't too much you really need to do about it. There usually is not an awful lot of bleeding. Um, What we try to track is how the venom marches. Say you're bitten on the hand, the venom... Uh, causes swelling to march up the hand. As the venom moves up the arm, it basically takes a regular hose and turns it into a soaker hose. So the cells that create your veins and lymphatics are tightly held together. When they come in contact with the venom, those bridges between the cells open up, which allows the plasma to leak out. And so as the venom moves up the arm, the swelling moves up the arm. And we can tell when the venom is stopped because the swelling stops. So we like to keep the arm parallel to the ground so that gravity doesn't come into play one way or another. But I wouldn't worry about that when it comes to, to, to getting to a facility. Get there fairly quickly. And the other thing is, particularly at some of the smaller facilities, make certain they call the poison center. Um, literally, we have had numerous occasions where someone truly has some swelling on a finger. They'll show up at one of the healthcare facilities where people don't frequently have the same kind of experience. I've had, I've taken care of over a thousand snake bite cases, so I'm fairly comfortable with it. Most people haven't seen any, and they wind up giving four to six vials of antivenin, which is eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and then they call a helicopter, which is another forty to fifty thousand dollars. They get to university, and we watch them for two hours and send them home. They could have bought a house, <laughs> and they didn't need the treatment in the first place. Okay. Uh, and a reminder, the uh, Poison Control Center number is 1-800-222-1222. All right, uh, let's take another quick break. When we get back, we'll have some more phone calls to get to. Adam and Faye are on the line. If you all would hold on for us, we'll get to your calls right after this break. We're visiting with Dr. Robert Galley this morning about uh, various bites and how to treat them. During the break, think about the difference between venomous and poisonous snakes. Even though many people use both words to describe dangerous snakes, there are technically only two poisonous snakes. 
We'll let you know what they are after the break, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you missed any of today's program, you can always subscribe to a podcast using your favorite podcast app on your smartphone or download the MPB Public Media app because that way you get to listen to MPB Think Radio on your schedule. We're visiting today with Dr. Robert Galley, who is helping us understand more about snake bites and what to do should someone uh, get a snake bite. Before the break, we asked the question, are there poisonous snakes? The correct term uh, to describe dangerous snakes is venomous. Uh, because snakes actively inject the toxin into their prey. Snake venom versus snake poison. Uh, when it's injected into you, it's venom. But technically, there are two poisonous snakes, and I hope I say this right. The Rhabdophis genus of snakes found in Southeast Asia are actually poisonous due to the toxins they sequester from the toads they eat. These snakes can then secrete the poisons to ward off predators. Oregon garter snakes also retain enough poisons in their liver from the newts they eat to be toxic to would-be predators like crows or foxes. So if we want to be technically correct, we will say venomous, but I think, uh, you know, practically speaking, uh, we do kind of use the words interchangeably. So we will we will cut you some slack here today on the show. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. We start again in Bay St. Louis. Adam has called in today. Good morning, Adam. Go ahead for us, please. Good morning. Really enjoy the show today. Thank you. Um, I've got a quick question. You mentioned a statistic earlier about the number of snake bites uh, poisonous or venomous snake bites every year. Uh, I was curious how many of those snake bites are actually from people who are purposefully picking them up and trying to, you know, handle them in some way versus someone that accidentally steps on one or whatever, which is really where a lot of the fear comes from. So I'll hang up and listen to your response. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we have any specific data on that. I can tell you that I'd probably say it's close to 50-50. You get a lot of bites on the hand, and and oftentimes you would think that that's from someone who is trying to grab a snake. Uh, Oftentimes it's someone who's trying to pick a tomato. Or if you play golf like I do and you find your ball in the rough, (laughs) it's better to find it with a five iron than it is with your hand. Um, uh, Frequently the unintentional ones are on the leg as well. Um, but it, it, it's close, close to 50, 50, I would, I would argue. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Next, uh, Faye's called in from Memphis today. Good morning, Faye. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I tuned in right as you were talking about mothballs to deter snakes. And, um, I learned a few years ago about, uh, well, first of all, it's not effective, but, you know, when we toss a whole bunch of mothballs in our closets, I learned that the chemical in mothballs is actually a neurotoxin to humans. Thank you, And Frank. if yes. you are using enough that you can actually smell the mothballs, then it's, it's a, it's, it can cause neurological damage. And, um, you know, so certainly it's not something you want to toss under your house, you know, a few boxes of neurotoxins. Um, but yeah, I, I learned that from a professor here and I just thought I would share that because I know a lot of people use them for moths and snakes too. All right. They work for moths, but not for snakes. Thank okay. you, Faye. <laughs> yes. And I'm not even sure how good they work for moths when you consider how toxic they are. But, um, 
I, I know we, the museum profession used to use a lot of mothballs, and it's pretty much, we don't do that much anymore. It's just too dangerous, really. They're naphthalene or dichlorobenzene, the newer ones. Um, yes, they, they are toxic. Um, it, it's usually not so much just from breathing it unless it's super high concentrations. We get more nervous when people start chewing on them like mm-hmm. they're gumballs. And again, because it's not an effective way to tr- to to uh, keep snakes away, so obviously, uh, just don't uh, don't even consider doing that for the safety factor. Not really worth it at all. Uh, we'll move on. Next, we've got uh, Jody, who's called in from Clinton. Jody, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, regarding a previous call, there's a wonderful. I won't say a documentary, but it's a true book called Salvation on Sand Creek about religious snake handlers. Mm-hmm. So it's. That's interesting. Um, but my call isn't really relevant probably to most of your listeners, but is there a coral snake in Belize, or is there something called a milk snake that looks just like a coral snake? Uh, you'll actually find... Other reasons for this. <laughs> you'll actually find them um, interchangeable in the United States. There is a coral snake that is in Mississippi. Um, they are scattered in... Typically, the the important thing to know is wherever you live, and and if you're like me, wherever you work, you need to know the snakes that are indigenous to the area uh, in which you work. Um, we, when I was in California, which is where I, I initially studied toxicology, we had two sets of snakes that looked near identical. And if it wasn't for that poem, "Red on Yellow Kills a Fellow," "Red on Black," "Okay for Jack," you'd You'd be hard-pressed to be able to tell the difference. The thing about a coral snake and the ones here um, is that they're maybe the size of a pencil. They're very small. And what they do in terms of envenomation, unlike the crotalids, they'll give you one quick whap with their front fangs and they're injecting venom. The coral snake needs to grab on and it uses its back uh, teeth to be able to grind in the venom and it takes a good 30 seconds to a minute you're going to recognize when that's happening to you and unless you're an infant and can't and can't protect yourself then you know you should be able to pull those off there is no anti-venom for coral snakes any longer because there really has not been that great a need that's the bad news the good news is that they have a neurotoxin which means you get paralyzed well, we had plenty of chemicals where we actually paralyze patients and keep them on a ventilator and maintain them for a variety of different reasons. And so the, the thought is a bad coral snake can, can be just supported that way. All right. Uh, Jody, thanks for calling in this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Dr. Robert Galley talking about uh, snake bites. Hope to transition our conversation before the end of the hour, uh, talk a little bit about spider bites as well. But we do have a couple of calls to get to. And first, I think we got a, a pet question for Dr. Major coming from Dalton in Alabama. Good morning. You're on the air with us, so go ahead, please. Good morning. How are y'all? We're doing good. What do you have for us? Um, I have a miniature snailzer named her name is Lucy, and sometimes I'll take her out to, you know, go to the restroom and do her business. But after she's done, um, I'll try to call her back in, and she will look at me like she's going to listen to me, but kind of like, what are you talking about, or... Um, I'm not listening to you. I can see you, but I'm not listening to you. 
Okay, I guess the question is, how do you get her to come to you? Uh, well, that, yeah. that, yeah. And she, you and know, how she's... Do, how do I get her to listen to me? Right, she's smart, like, smart, smart enough to know that she doesn't have to come or she thinks she doesn't have to come to you. I was, and my aunt um, is living with us and yeah. spoils her. Uh, absolutely. I understand spoiling. And, uh, of course, our pets tend to train us in many aspects, and this is what she's doing. Uh, I would suggest as a as a trial, take her out on a leash, maybe a long leash, uh, and reward her uh, after she's done her business. And you may have tried this, but still have her on a leash where she can't evade you and uh, see if she doesn't, if she likes rewards. It uh, sounds like she's already spoiled to some treats. Uh, see what happens then. And then maybe over time, if she knows that she's going to get a treat after she's done her business, hopefully she'll come to you. Other than that, you may need to seek help from a professional trainer. Good luck to you. All right. Thanks for the call. Let's uh, get one call in before the next break. Uh, it's Kathleen and Osaka with a quick snake story for us. Go ahead, <coughs> Kathleen. Well, have a cat. Her name is Angel. She was outside playing around, and I'm going, oh, look at that. Isn't she so cute? And I I said, I'm going inside, Angel. You want to come? You know, like she's going to answer me. She follows me in the house. I realize she's got something wiggling at the corner of her mouth. And I said, well, I better go see about it. Before I can see about it, she took off running, went straight upstairs under my bed and let it go. It was a little garden snake, but it was still a snake to me. <laughs> I was scared to go in my room. I finally caught it, but I opened every door I had with uh, wooden spoons and beat it on the side of the doors just to make sure that that snake wasn't going to come out and haunt me the rest of my life. But that was horrible. <laughs> but she did it. She was bringing you a present. That's what she was <laughs> yes, doing. God exactly. Bless her. Right. Well, we're glad it wasn't a pygmy rattler. <laughs> All right. I'm glad it wasn't a mouse. Yeah. Oh, yes. That would be terrible. Uh, thanks, Kathleen, well, for your call. Day. Thanks. Uh, let's get one more snake story in. It's Sue and Beaumont's called in today. Good morning, Sue. Hey, how's everybody? Good and good. Well, I have a little quick snake story. I might have told you all this before. I was working. I'm a nurse. I was working in an emergency room at a county hospital, and this man rushed in and said his, his uh, co-worker had been bitten by a snake as he was reaching down to hook a chain up to a log or something. And uh, I said, and so the guy comes comes in holding his arm, and his friend he says, "I got the snake. I, I I knocked him dead, and I put him in my lunchbox." And he pulled up his lunchbox and he opened the lid, and this snake reared up like like one of those dancing cobras. Or it reared up, and everybody in the emergency room almost passed out. <laughs> and I was hollering, "Put the lid down on that lunchbox!" I could just see chasing a snake all over the emergency room, you know. But anyway. All right. Thanks, Sue, for your call. Let's uh, take one final break this hour. When we get back, we're going to transition our conversation to talk about spiders. We've talked about venomous snakes in Mississippi. Are there venomous spiders in Mississippi? We'll have that answer for you after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 
Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we're talking about bites uh, with our guest, Dr. Robert Galley from the University Medical Center. Uh, and we've talked a lot about snakes, uh, but we would like to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about spider bites as well. So uh, we talked about the venomous snakes in Mississippi uh, are there venomous spiders in Mississippi? And if so, what are they? Dr. Galley? The literature cites something like 20,000 species of spiders in the United States. All but two of them are venomous. So you can anticipate that if you see a spider, it's venomous. The good news is if they don't have fangs large enough to be able to penetrate your skin, they're kind of irrelevant. And we kind of narrow it down in Mississippi to the 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 two that we get most concerned about are the black widow and the brown recluse. Mm-hmm. Black widow will create a bite that um, initially well will bring on muscle spasm, and the brown recluse is notorious for tissue breakdown. Uh, there are reasons behind all of that, and usually it's the composition of the venom, and our approach to them, of course, are are, are vastly different. I think the thing that's most important is uh, that spider bites, at least when they present to the emergency department, are way overdiagnosed, meaning falsely diagnosed. And there's a way to be able to tell the difference of whether or not something is venomous versus something is infectious. If you just kind of wake up and you notice that you have a spot on your arm that's now pink and may have a little pustule and may be warm to the touch, that's a hair follicle that's been infected. And so that's now a folliculitis with a surrounding cellulitis, and it's treated with an antibiotic. Venom doesn't get treated with antibiotics. So if your doctor says, oh, yeah, that's a spider bite, but then treats you with an antibiotic, that kind of is illogical unless in his head somewhere he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to treat it as an infection. And I guess it's a lot easier to take if you're going to spend money going to the doctor's office to say, well, you were bitten by a venomous spider instead of, well, you got some poop on your arm and it's now in your <laughs> hair follicle. And so that's what's infected you. So with the, either the black widow or the brown recluse, if you are bitten, how quickly will you begin to notice the, the symptoms? The first thing that typically happens from either ticks or mosquitoes or um, spiders Uh, Anything that's in particular going for a blood meal is going to inject a protein into you in order to – it's an anticoagulant. And so they don't want that blood in the surrounding area to clot because they want to suck that in for their meal. That protein that creates that mosquito bite, classic appearance that we've all had, um, is what we develop a histamine reaction to or a localized allergic reaction. And so you wind up first having a, a little itchy kind of a bite. After that, if it's going to be a a black widow, you're going to get surrounding muscle spasm. It's going to be fairly significant muscle spasm, and it's usually localized. It's unusual that this becomes systemic, meaning really widespread, unless it happens to an infant or a toddler. The brown recluse is mistaken an awful lot of times because it creates what's a classic target lesion which is it literally looks like a target that you would shoot at. There's a central area that's a blister surrounded by an area of bruising, true ecchymosis, surrounded by an area of blanching. So it looks like a target in the first couple of days. 
in a day or two after that, that sloughs off and you wind up getting a thick scab that's on top of it. And then in the week after that, that sloughs off and you wind up having fatty tissue that gets broken down because of the enzymes that are in it. So that takes a week to be able to develop. And, and by that time, you know, everything is kind of done. Unfortunately, there is an, no antivenin that's reliable for the brown recluse. And so it's just symptomatic re- relief and care that we do. Whereas there is an antivenin for the black widow. Unfortunately, it can sometimes cause a deadly allergic reaction. So if the disease is not, if the cure is worse than the disease, I typically stay away from that. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Major, what about uh, spider bites in, in pets? Is that fairly common? I'd say probably about the same uh, thing that Dr. Galley has said, really, as far as the bites. Obviously, if you see a spider bite a dog or a cat, uh, certainly there might be an issue. And over the years, I may have seen one or two that had the symptoms developed, like the brown recluse that uh, Dr. Galley has described. Uh, on the other hand, it could have been a bacterial infection that could have had the same, basically the same effect. So it's hard to know. It's easy to say brown recluse, but it's hard to know for certain, except for those symptoms that uh, you just gave. Oh, and also, I guess the uh, from what my previous conversations we've had, the, the brown recluse is is well named in that it it's reclusive. It's not going to be out and about. So, um, Libby, what are you some ideas about tips and things about or where to maybe try to avoid spiders, or if you're in an area, be kind of aware uh, and tread lightly. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> they don't make a, a showy web, a brown recluse. When it's in your house, it may be a sketchy little web, and they hide. They're very, like you said, they're very reclusive. They hide a lot. I found one in my attic not too long ago in some quilt batting that had been rolled up in there, and I could see it pretty easy through the plastic. I isolated it and took it down to show my husband, who has had some training with spiders, and I said, this looks like a recluse. And he said, yep, that's definitely one, and we dispensed with it. But they you don't often see them when they might be there, but they tend to be like basements or closets back in the dark corners if you're cleaning someplace like that it's a good idea to wear a pair of gloves do they do they molt uh i've heard that sometimes you'll find the uh shell or the the cast off skin skin. but there is a a brown house spider that looks so similar that it's very similar to a brown recluse and so i can't reliably tell those cast off skins apart but um, so basically, I would say if if you've got a spider with a nice distinct web, you don't have a brown recluse, and you don't have to worry about a spider bite from those spiders. They're not going to sneak out of that web and go bite you. <laughs> They're all programmed to catch things, to eat things that are caught in their web. That molting is known as an instar, since they have this hard carapace, this exoskeleton. For them to grow, they have to get out of that and create a new one. And and uh, I've got a number of slides of single recluses that are in an area, and to show how reclusive, they just don't leave their area. There'll be several of these little molts that are around mm-hmm. in that same spot because um, they're not out hunting humans each day. And unlike snakes, where they're big enough and have fangs large enough to be able to, to bite you, even if they don't have fangs, a non-venomous snake... A spider really is just so teeny. It it knows it's overmatched. It's probably going to take off. Mm-hmm. And they're hunting 
um, insects, mm-hmm. right? In the dark, things that crawl around in a reclusive fashion as well. So yeah, so I imagine most encounters would be again when you kind of accidentally stumble into where they are and, and they're defending themselves. We we can safely say that these spiders are not going to come out on the attack after us. So yeah, if you're cleaning up a, an attic or a basement or anything like that, and now uh, the black widow tends to be in a woodshed. If we want to catch one to show it at the museum, we're going to go look in a woodpile. And or my garage. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. So we got another spot if we need to look. You might have both in your garage. They like that, under a rock or a log, mm-hmm. yeah. And you know our cats, I know we've run out of time, our cats are good. Uh, they'll pretty well take care of spiders that are crawling across the floor. Think about that. They don't, they don't let anything get by. And I'm sure that we'd see a lot more uh, wounds or bites if they were poisonous ones. All right, uh, before we go, one last uh, reminder of the number for the Poison Control Center. It's 1-800-222-1222. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. So for Dr. Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Robert Galley, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next, it's our newest show, Autocorrect, with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.